Hello, it's Thursday, July 21st, 2016. I'm Omar Ismail and welcome to the NOS space. 1115. It's an odd number. An odd number composed of two primes, 5 and 223. Some say that it takes 18 minutes to count up to 1115. However, how does it feel to live 1115? Khaled Alcazaz is a Canadian resident, an engineer, and a human rights advocator who has been illegally detained by the Egyptian military since July 3, 2013. July 3, 2013 was 1,115 days ago. My guest today is uh, Ahmed Atiyah, brother-in-law to Khaled, and he is here to share with us the story of Khaled. Ahmed, good evening. Thank you for having me with you, Omar. So, who is Khaled? Khaled is uh, quite a unique individual, and not just because he's my brother-in-law, but because um, you know it, it takes a very you know it takes an individual like uh, with a very unique character and someone who has touched many lives to get hundreds of Canadians to come out, those who knew him, those who didn't, to come out and advocate for his freedom, for his human rights, and that's exactly what happened for Khaled before he was released. I mean, Khaled was someone who went to university when he was, I believe, uh, you know, 16. Uh, so academically, he was very strong. Khaled is someone who was a, 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 you know, captain of his volleyball team in university to, you know, in Egypt when he went to the American Open University. Khaled is someone who uh, ran campus clubs at UFT that um, represented, you know, issues of justice and human rights and social matters. You know, someone, Khaled is someone who delivers sandwiches on the streets of Toronto. And he's also someone that when you were, you know, moving into your new house, he'd guaranteed to be there to carry stuff in and help you paint it. Um, and he's someone who, when people looked at a new president, Mohamed Morsi, and a lot of, there was a lot of political kind of division, and Khaled saw an opportunity to make a major change in this world, not just Egypt by uh, taking and accepting a position as a staffer there uh, on, on human rights and women's rights. He knew that he could make a difference. He believed he wanted to make a difference and that he could. Those are all, you know, dimensions of who Khalid al-Qazaz is. And I think that's why so many people love him because they know him and love him because they don't and what they've read about him. What is something that he's done while he was here in Canada? Well, Khaled was someone who, you know, we were peers at UFT. We both were studying engineering before he even, you know, before he ever became my brother-in-law. Uh, he was someone um, that could not walk down the halls of our campus without changing something that he uh, did not like. Uh, you know, if you knew Khaled and met, you were helping on something, doing something on campus because he was always in charge of something. Uh, he was the founder of the Students for World Justice at U of T that till today exists and uh, advocate is a large group at U of T who advocate for social justice issues. He was the founder of uh, the U of T program for orphan sponsorship, which today continues to sponsor through student funding um, hundreds of orphans across the world. Uh, he was the president of other clubs at U of T, but even after university, his advocacy and his uh, yeah, did not. He became a community activist, so it was part of who he was. Um, he, you know, 
Khaled ran youth programs. He ran social programs in Toronto. He was volunteering in any opportunity that he could find. And, uh, and, he, and, and he wasn't someone who just worked in isolation. But there were a lot of people who will actually tell you, my life changed when I met Khaled and Sara. Because both of them, and I'm, I, I spoke a lot about Khaled, but Sara was very much like him. And that's how they met. They met through social justice uh, activism. But, um, uh, you know, both of them were people who uh, attracted others who were looking for something in their lives uh, to fill in a gap in their lives or, you know, to people who knew part of their life had to be changing the world around them. And, and, and they were people who led others. Um, you know, Khaled, uh, just as an example, you know, there are thousands of youth who went down on in the revolution in Egypt Khaled was in Tahrir Square uh, for the 18 days. We never knew if he was alive or dead. That was the person that he was here in, in, in Canada. He was someone who always put himself in, uh, you know, in, 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 in risky or not risky, but difficult, challenging situations for the better of other for other for the better of others. So is that why he went to Egypt, knowing that the situation there was what it was? Why did he elect to? to go there. Well, Khaled and Sar actually went um, way before the revolution. They went in 2005. Uh, they had both graduated. Sara completed her master's. She was working. He was working here in Canada. They were they were quite happy. They had planned to have a life here in Canada. But then Khaled's father, and who, who the family, his family, uh, are uh, own a school in Egypt. His father fell ill, uh, seriously ill. And Khaled was, you know, for kind of to, you know, as any of us have a responsibility towards our family, him and Sara moved to Egypt temporarily so he could be by his father and carry their business. Uh, but, you know, as, as with everything I've described Sara and Khaled, it wasn't enough to just go to Egypt. They knew they had to go there for another purpose, so they started their own school. They started an international uh, school that taught Canadian, um, American, and British curriculum. But it was a school that became known for uh, a very unique program that taught character uh, character development, taught human rights, and actually taught volunteering. Uh, and 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 is the only school probably in Egypt that enforced 40 hours of volunteering on a student. Something we all know here from Canada. And the concept of volunteering in Egypt is uh, doesn't really exist. And so they were actually graduating students who they were um, believed that these students would one day make a change in Egypt society based on characters that all of us here learn in Canada and take for granted. But Khaled and Sar knew these are the Canadian values that could one day change Egypt. And so they were there for a larger project uh, of this educational model that they believed in. In 2011, Egypt was getting tough. They were planning to come home, actually. We were all planning. They, they were actually, the whole move was planned. And then the revolution happened, and like all of us, it was a moment of um, celebration. Everybody was attached to their TVs. Khaled knew that you can't be in Egypt sitting on your couch. Uh, Sar and Khaled decided to ride the revolution. Uh, they were there. It was a responsibility. It was a dream, in fact. You know, you live all those years in Egypt uh, dealing and just everyday challenges, and here's an opportunity to change the lives of others. And what was different about Sar and Khaled? And other people in Egypt, Sara Khaled knew what Egypt could be because they lived Canada. They saw the world outside of Egypt. And so when they went down into the streets, 
they knew it, for other Egyptians it was just a matter of frustration and enough is enough but for Saran Khalid it was a dream that actually change could come to Egypt change that they knew and they, they knew what it meant to have freedom of you know freedom of democracy and freedom of uh, expression and freedom of religious uh, choice and, and others they knew what it meant to have rights so they decided to stay and Khalid you know being Khalid and everything I described got involved in the post-revolution you know he was not someone who was uh, politically involved or so you know uh, involved in any religious or ideological groups in Egypt beforehand but uh, you know when he, he saw an opportunity with the party that was taking the lead to be part of that to actually you know because you have two choices in social change be the opposition or be the one to have the power to change and he chose to be part of the Morsi government, which was a very legitimate government, one that was democratically elected, to be someone who can actually uh, use the power of government to change the day-to-day lives of Egyptians. So he was jailed because he believed in change? Absolutely. Why has he been locked up for so long? Is it because he believes that Egypt can be better? Why would someone stop a country from becoming a better place well of course the you know that is a political discussion of what took place in Egypt and and discussion around you know the regime that overthrew uh, President Morsi mm-hmm. and then what came after that and the human rights situation and that's a political discussion yeah. and that's a whole other podcast yeah, that you yeah. can you can <laughs> you can do one day but with Khalid I mean his you know, they detained on July 3rd, which in fact is Khaled's birthday, and his children had the cake on the table, they had presents and waiting for him, and then the announcement was made. No one heard back from Khaled that afternoon. Um, they waited, they waited, they waited, and then Sarah got a text message from Khaled saying, you know, I'm sorry, uh, but I decided to stay with the president. Uh, and that, we never knew what that meant at the time, but it meant that he had been arrested, he had been disappeared, in fact. The United Nations categorized that as enforced disappearance. And then after that, five months where we never knew where he was. And then after those five months, it was a, a nightmare of the prison that he was moved into. Uh, but he was basically eventually first imprisoned, part of that coup, but then eventually imprisoned because, like everyone else, it is a punish, you are punished of having a voice, punished for believing in change in Egypt because, you know, that is a, a, a risk to many people in Egypt. From his, from his time in prison, what are some stories that you've heard uh, about his time there? Khaled uh, was moved in December 2015, <clears throat> sorry, 2013 to Torah prison. That is the worst prison in Cairo in Egypt. Uh, he was moved to the worst wing of that prison called Akrab Scorpion Prison, a scorpion wing. And within that, he was held in solitary confinement for uh, a year uh, or just over a year. Uh, We don't know the details. You know, he was basically held in a two by two cell. My sister used to call it, you know, um, uh, the size of a closet. Uh, In fact, he uh, had leaked a article that was published in the New York Times and he described his cell. Uh, and, and at some point, a lot of the supporters here in Canada had built a, uh, a mock-up cell that was in front of Mississauga Square, and people came to see what it looks like to be in that position. But um, what we know more about is what it was like to visit him. To get from the beginning of the of the entrance of the jail to the wing took seven hours. You'd have to uh, ride a train, so my sister would take a train. Uh, there were checkpoints. There were constant security checks. 
everything she would take uh, with her would be searched. Most of the time, she could never actually give it to him. Eventually, when she got to his wing, uh, it was still a probability uh, of whether she would see him or not. Sometimes she was turned back. Um, sometimes she would see him, and when she did, it was behind a glass wall. Uh, she wasn't allowed. There was no physical. Uh, you know, she could never hug him. Um, but he would speak through a phone. Um, in her last visit before she left Egypt, uh, you know, she insisted and uh, for she took her children, insisted that her children would have the choice or the option of going behind the glass wall and hugging their father before they left to Canada. And, and you know, indefinitely, no one knew when they would see him again. That was the only time ever where they opened that glass door. But, um, you know, uh, we know that Khalid never got sunlight. Um, you know, the, the food situation was difficult. Uh, and it was overall a, a very serious situation that he was held in. How do, you, how do you deal with that every day of your life, knowing that someone's going, someone very close to you is going through such torture? Um, it's a tough question because it was something that I would think about every day. And the way I coped with it is was not to think about it because it was too difficult and but just the feeling of knowing that Khalid was um, in a solitary confinement two by two cell an individual who lived every day of his life you know doing something being someone who was active imagine what it was like for him to be locked and have no choice um, for me the way I coped with it is I did everything in my power to be his voice uh, to be to do what he would do uh, I every night before I slept I had to feel content that I did everything possible that day there was not one more email I could write or one more phone call I could make that's how I coped with it knowing that one day I can one day hopefully soon I can hug Khaled at Pearson Airport feeling satisfied that I did everything that I could for him are are there any silver linings in this in in Khalid's uh, time in prison do you, for you, for him, or for your uh, sister? There are blessings that God sends you, and you don't know them at the time, but you realize later. We never had communication with Khalid. Sara never had communication. So that at the time is a disaster. That is very difficult to cope with, especially his direct family and us, not knowing anything about him, his medical condition. But in hindsight, it's a blessing because you were then focused. You were not dragged down by knowing the difficult situation he was in, but you were focused on getting him out. Uh, I think that was a blessing for all of us. Um, there are not many silver linings, to yeah, be honest. It yeah. was very difficult. It's very difficult. Uh, but you know, when he leaked, for example, he leaked a, an article that he wrote, um, and his article made waves internationally. That was a you know, and, and people woke up. You know, like people knew Khaled. I mean, he worked in government. People in different countries knew Khaled. Uh, they they had met him on diplomatic, you know, meetings, and it was a, it was a it was a good reminder to those people. I mean, he described his experience as as if he was photoshopped out of the picture. The world had forgotten him. One day he was there, and then somebody just removed him. And he writes that in his article. Uh, you know, these are, for all of us that was a reminder that. Although we hadn't seen him or heard from him for so long, he was still as real as it gets. He was still someone we had to fight for. What, what has the Canadian government done to help? And has there been any change in 
tone uh, since the liberal government has taken over? You know, um, the uh, in general, in principle, um, governments are governments. Uh, human rights uh, are a difficult matter when it comes to government intervention. Uh, every family who has a, ma- a family member in hardship here, or, or or here, you know, in this case, we're talking abroad. Um, it's it takes a lot of effort, you know, and uh, and 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 unfortunately the lesson learned is that you have to work very hard and you have to have a voice not just yours but a voice of many people uh, for government to take action uh, and you know throughout from when Khalid was detained on the, under the previous government uh, they did take certain actions there was a lot of advocacy and a lot of pressure the case was clearly a humanitarian case it was well documented uh, there was international attention to the case. It, you know, had its case. There are only certain cases that actually reached kind of international human rights levels, where human rights groups across the world take action or speak out. So Khalid's was one of those in 2013 and 14 till today. And um, the uh, Canadian government, I think, was very co- uh, cognizant of uh, the Canadian public interest and concern about Khalid. Uh, about the husband, uh, someone who contributed so much to Canada, someone who was so loved by so many Canadians, someone who was the husband of a Canadian and a father of four others. So, you know, the former government did take a number of actions, which I think wasn't the full reason, but played a a big role in Khaled's release. Um, With the current government, we're very optimistic. I mean, we're you know uh, about the ability of this government to take uh, principled positions on human rights. Uh, we had to be patient when this new government took office to allow it to um, set stable itself within the first two to three months. Um, but like any other government, it takes public opinion. It takes pressure for them to prioritize the file uh, because they have many files. Um, and that's just how politics works. Uh, this government hasn't taken significant action on the file, but most recently they have given us some hope. Um, Omar uh, MP and Parliamentary Secretary Omar Ghabra traveled to Egypt with the Honorable Minister Dion, and they raised the case with the Egyptian authorities at the highest levels. That is something we've been asking for for a very long time, and so it was um, a, a happy moment for our family to know that that action was taken. But people are not released and people are not given their rights because of one action. It takes persistence and commitment from people in, in, in government. And uh, and it's their responsibility, I believe, not just in this file, but every human rights file. We've elected officials. Those elected officials have a responsibility, uh, especially in, at the hard times. And the hardest are human rights cases because uh, they're not easy to act on. And so uh, and it takes a lot of very savvy um, and very smart uh, p- political strategy to resolve these cases, uh, but we're optimistic that uh, this government will continue to do what they what they need to do and what they are uh, o- obligated to do. In fact, uh, to not just bring Khalid home, but to do what's best for his children, for his wife, and him, who are all Canadian. Um, and my last question is, what can we do to help? I think uh, people need to speak. People need to raise concern. Uh, you know, every week the government sits in its own caucus, the Liberal Party has a caucus, and it sits down and it evaluates what is important to Canadians. 
and uh, and MPs will speak. Well, my constituents have spoken about this or that, and unless you actually raise cases with your your MPs, they will not think of bringing it up. And and every MP is responsible to voice the opinion of their constituents. So as a starting point, and, and, and I know we do this a lot and we say this a lot, but it's quite true about how our government and our politics in Canada work. You need to raise the case and follow up and go visit with your MPs. It takes effort, but it's the only way to do it. Ultimately, though, um, you know, we, 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 we need to raise our concerns with ministers, uh, with uh, those who have positions in government. Uh, because they will only act when they know that the public act, when the public cares. That's just how governments work. So as an action item, anyone that's listening to this podcast should email their local MP asking for Khalid to asking for the release of Khalid, asking him that he comes back to Canada, correct? Absolutely. And I I can't stress enough how important this is. Uh, this is, it doesn't matter if he's Canadian or not, this is a fellow human uh, being. Someone shouldn't be in so much distress. And I'm asking everyone to email your local MP, talk with them. Khalid, uh, Ahmed, thank you so much for the opportunity. Uh, and hopefully Khalid will be released very soon. Thank you, Omar, for having me.